This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Isaiah. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. The interesting thing is throughout the Bible, Jerusalem and Babylon are often always drawn in contradiction, in contrast. Whereas Jerusalem is always, it's the city of peace, Jerusalem. It's the city of God. It is the city of good. It is the city of salvation. But all throughout the Bible, Babylon is just the opposite. It is the city of war. It is the uh, city of evil. It is the city of unrest. It is the city of world system and, and humanism. And you see that all through the Bible. Throughout the Bible, we often get these bits of history that offer us insight into the spiritual world. Even if you're not a history buff, the typology found in Scripture is often quite fascinating. In today's message, as Pastor Gary teaches through the book of Isaiah, one of these pictures we get is of the cities of Babylon and Jerusalem. Even though they were actual historical cities, They also represent to us the system of man versus the righteous way of God. Join us as Pastor Gary draws out this comparison. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Isaiah chapter 13 as he begins his message, Who is Satan? Well, here we are, Isaiah chapter 14. Let me give you a little bit of the background before we we read. And we're actually going to start at the end of chapter 13 and then read into chapter 14. But if you've been with us so far in our study through Isaiah up to this point, 150 years before Isaiah, the nation of Israel went through civil war. And as a result, the nation split north and south. And the northern kingdom was known by the larger name Israel, and the southern kingdom was known by one of the tribal names, Judah. They're all still the Jewish people, but after civil war, there's strife and conflict in the kingdom, and so now it's divided. The kingdom of the north has its own king, kingdom of the south has its own king, Israel and Judah respectively. Even though Isaiah is called as a prophet exclusively to the southern kingdom of Judah, Between chapters 13 and 23 in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is given a word from the Lord concerning neighboring cities and countries, and he prophesies against them, and he basically announces and pronounces God's judgment and warning even among these neighboring cities and and nations. I'll I'll just do a quick survey. You can kind of skim through your Bibles, and you'll notice maybe some various subtitles. Like, for example, here in chapters 13 and 14, it's addressed to the city of Babylon, which would be on a map in modern Iraq today. Uh, In chapters 15 and 16, uh, he has a, a prophecy against the country of Moab. Now, Moab is today Jordan. It's east of the Dead Sea. Uh, In chapter 17, he has a word for the city of Damascus. That's the same city of Damascus today, Damascus, Syria. In chapter 18, he has a word for the country of Cush, which is Ethiopia. Into chapter 21, uh, he talks again about Babylon. He talks to Edom, which is southern part of Jordan. He talks about Arabia, which is Saudi Arabia. 
And then into chapter 22, he talks uh, about the city of Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Judah. So that's his own territory where Isaiah is prophesying. And then finally, chapter 23 is a prophecy against the city of Tyre. Now, Tyre is located on the Mediterranean Sea in what is today Lebanon. So Isaiah, even though he's called specifically to minister to the people of God in the southern kingdom of Judah for providential reasons, God wants Isaiah in the hearing of the people to pronounce these various prophecies and judgments and warnings against neighboring cities and countries. The one we're going to look at today is from chapters 13 and 14. So if you'll go back there to chapters 13 and 14, this is the prophecy against Babylon. And uh, we're going to look at, at this prophecy today because it contains within it something very important for us to understand even in our daily lives today. So here in, in chapters 13 and 14, let me draw your attention to just the tail end of chapter 13, starting at verse 19. So chapter 13, verse 19, he says, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, notice that, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will rest his flocks there. Okay, true or false? Babylon is about 75 miles due south of Baghdad in Iraq today. Is Babylon occupied or not? No, Babylon is just ruins. Nobody lives there. No Arab pitches his tent there. No shepherds will rest his flocks there. Verse 21, but desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds, jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. You jump down to chapter 14. Look at verse 3. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, he's saying this to the people of Judah, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. Now jump over further to verse 12. Still here in chapter 14, look at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But... You were brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb. But you, you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Pause there and we'll pray and dissect all this. Let's pray together. Lord, it's good to just draw near to you. And as we open up the book of Isaiah, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through this passage, that we might be more equipped in our faith 
that we might have a better understanding of some things, Lord, revealed in this chapter. And, and Lord, that you would just minister your love, your grace, your encouragement, your peace to our hearts today. And we just turn to you and look to you, Lord, in our time of need. Strengthen our hearts, we ask now, as we study your word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. So Isaiah is prophesying, again, somewhere between 740 and 700 B.C. And the interesting thing is when he writes here about Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, he's writing about a hundred years before they even come to be a world power. They will become, as he mentions there in chapter 13, the jewel of the kingdoms. Babylon will become the headquarters for one of the most powerful kingdoms on earth. We know it now historically, but Isaiah's prophesying at a time when Babylon in these days was just a small, know-nothing town. Nothing much was happening there. But Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to write about the rise of Babylon, and he's also going to talk about the fall of Babylon. Again, Babylon on a map is situated about 75 miles due south of Baghdad in Iraq. And we know of it now historically, but in Isaiah's day, it was, it was not a city of renown. We have the advantage of history knowing about the greatness that Babylon once achieved. Herodotus would be a historian who would write as an eyewitness about Babylon from what he observed, at least in its waning years. But we know from history that Babylon reached the pinnacle of its success during the days of King Nebuchadnezzar. We're talking mid-500s B.C. Herodotus would write in his observation of this great city that it was a, a city that was basically a square. It was 15 miles east to west, 15 miles north to south. In other words, it was 60 miles in circumference, just the city of Babylon. That the walls were 320 feet high. That's 30 stories. They were 87 feet thick, protecting Babylon. It is said that they could ride six chariots abreast on the top of the walls of Babylon and have chariot races. They did a marvelous thing, too, to add extra defense to the ancient city of Babylon because it's situated along the Euphrates River. They diverted part of the Euphrates to make a moat around the ancient city of Babylon and then under the walls and through the city as a meandering stream. And because Nebuchadnezzar replicated the great flower gardens of other uh, uh, tropical places on this kind of ziggurat, this kind of ascending tower, it became known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But Isaiah is writing it at a time about a hundred years before any of that. And he sees it all, God's revealed it to him, and he prophesies about its rise, and he prophesies about its fall. Now, Babylon has a significant place in the Bible. The city of Babylon is mentioned 260 times from cover to cover in the Bible. That is more times, Babylon is mentioned, more times than any other city in the Bible next to Jerusalem. So you have a great prominence here with the, the mention of Babylon so many times. Jerusalem mentioned most in the Bible, next to that, Babylon. But the interesting thing is throughout the Bible, Jerusalem and Babylon are often always drawn in contradiction, in contrast. Whereas Jerusalem is always, it's the city of peace, Jerusalem. It's the city of God. It is the city of good. It is the city of salvation. 
But all throughout the Bible, Babylon is just the opposite. It is the city of war. It is the uh, city of evil. It is the city of unrest. It is the city of world system and, and humanism. And you see that all through the Bible. Jerusalem versus Babylon. Uh, the first time that we see Babylon mentioned in the Bible is Genesis chapter 10. It was built by a guy by the name of Nimrod. He was not a good guy. He built Babylon, and in Genesis chapter 11, it talks about the people of Babylon who built a tower in their city called the Tower of Babel. Babel for Babylon. The Tower of Babel was built because the people, in opposition to God, wanted to draw closer to the stars so they could worship the starry hosts. The first occult worship happens in Babylon. It becomes the the seedbed for all occult practices and worship. The worship of the sun, the worship of the moon, the worship of stars, all of that began in Babylon. The first time we see it there, Genesis 10 and 11. The last time we see Babylon mentioned in the Bible is Revelation 17 and 18. And in Revelation, it tells us that what is now a pile of ruins and just an archaeological dig, that Babylon will again be rebuilt. And it will become the center for one world government, one world religion, and one world economy. This is what the Bible predicts. The Bible says that Babylon will rise from the ashes and will again be this place where it will be the seat of one world government, one world religion, and one world economy. And that, in Revelation 17, Babylon is called the great prostitute because all the other nations of the world will be seduced by her humanistic false religion, one world government, one economy proposition. So all these other nations will be seduced by Babylon. And so in Revelation 18, Babylon will be overthrown once and for all. And Jesus returns in Revelation 19. So we're not done with Babylon. But the interesting thing is that in the Bible, it's always spoken of as it relates to this evil world system. The place where humanism and demonic things and occult worship and and all of this rises. And so what happens here is Isaiah, now writing in Isaiah chapter 14, gives us a glimpse as to what is behind all that. And in particular, who is behind all that. And it is none other than Satan. And what we find nestled here in Isaiah chapter 14 is this veiled reference, but it's clear, a reference to Satan throughout the 14th chapter. And what Isaiah does here, this is by inspiration of the Spirit, what God causes Isaiah to do is to use the king of Babylon as a type or a picture of Satan. So the king of Babylon was a real guy, but he was a ruthless guy. He was a pagan guy, and he was an enemy of God. And so there's an immediate context to this story where he will be overthrown and God deals with him, okay? But there's this veiled reference how the king of Babylon serves to be a picture for us of Satan. And all in the 14th chapter, starting in verse 12, down through what I read there around verse 20, there's this passage here that really is about Satan because he is the power behind, not just the king of Babylon, he is the power behind all evil world systems. So, you know, today we're going to talk about Satan. How fun is that? But let me explain to you why this is important. In the margin of your Bible, you can write next to Isaiah 14, write Ezekiel 28. Because between Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, now we're not going to read out of Ezekiel 28, but I will refer to it a few times. 
Between Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, what we have are two chapters that give us the most detail about Satan, how he originated, what went wrong, and what his ultimate demise will be. So we're going to see this here out of chapter 14, and I'm going to refer to Ezekiel 28 also. But listen, folks, this should appeal to us on a real human level, but I'm going to mention to you why it is that we are not just needful of knowing these things, but why we seem to be fascinated with this kind of a story. Because whenever we start to talk about Satan, you know, we think about the whole story of good versus evil. And everybody likes the good story of good versus evil and how the hero wins and the villain is subdued. Why do you think there's so much interest in movies like Spider-Man and Superman and Black Panther? Because, you know, we we like a good hero and and we like the villain to be defeated. And so, you know, we're kind of drawn to that. Now, more than just Hollywood, though, we need to understand Satan is a real being. He's a real being. He's not just the counter on one shoulder to the good angel on your other shoulder, okay? He's not the guy in a red suit and a pitchfork, got to get all that stuff out of your head. And by the way, he is not the opposite of God, because God has no equal, and so therefore he has no opposite. But that said, Satan is opposed to everything concerning God, and he's opposed to everything that God loves, including you. Because God loves you so much, and God the Father put in motion a plan to redeem you from this sinful, wicked world and to rescue you and me from the kingdom of darkness and to take us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, okay? God has our best interest always at heart. That's the whole message of the cross and God's love for us, rescuing us, forgiving us, redeeming us. But Satan... Satan doesn't have your best interest at heart. Because you look like your father and you're loved by your father, Satan hates you. And he wants to destroy your life, and he wants to destroy your marriage, and he wants to kill your kids, and he wants to wreck your business, and he wants to do everything he can to discourage and to deceive and to tempt, to do everything he can. Because, listen, he's not oblivious to Scripture. He knows Scripture. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Satan's quoting Scripture every time. Now, Jesus hit him back with Scripture because Satan misused and misquoted Scripture, but he knows it. He knows Scripture, and Satan knows his ultimate demise. So he's on a course of trying to take as many people with him as possible. He wants you. He wants you to be with him, not to be with God. He wants you to spend eternity with him in a lake of fire, not to go to heaven and spend eternity with your heavenly Father. And so Satan is at work. I say he's a real formidable foe. Now, we don't, we don't need to, you know, wig out and get worried because as part of the Bible study today, I hope to kind of leave you with a sense of just your assurance in Christ and who you are in the Lord and not to be worried, but to be aware, to have your eyes wide open that there is a real enemy of your souls. And Jesus said, the enemies come but to steal, kill, and destroy. There's nothing good about him. And everything about him, his whole M.O., is the, are those three things about you, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so th- to the degree that we can at least expose him and realize, okay, he's at work, let me be aware of him, and let me understand how he operates, we'll be better off to just kind of 
find our confidence in the Lord and know who we are in Christ and rest in the Lord and not be fearful, but to be aware. Is everybody, everybody on board with me? Everybody know what we're talking about now, okay? So let's take a look here at the passage here. Throughout the Bible, Satan has several names or titles. Here are a few. Satan, that's actually the Hebrew word, Satan, meaning adversary. He's also known as the devil, which means false accuser or slanderer. He's known in the Bible as the tempter, the wicked one, the accuser of the brothers, the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the dragon. In Revelation 12, he's the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And in this story, in Isaiah 14, 12, he's known as Lucifer. Now, if you have a King James Bible or a New King James, you'll see that name right there in verse 12. Look here again, chapter 14, verse 12. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Now, if you have a King James or New King James, instead of morning star, it says Lucifer. Capital L. It's a given name for him. Other translations, like what I'm reading from, says morning star. Other translations say day star. So where do we get this name Lucifer? The Hebrew word here is halal. And halal means morning star, day star, or light bearer. Light bearer. In the Latin translation of your Bibles, the Latin for morning star or for this phrase here, is lucemfere. And lucemfere translates light bearer. And that's where we get the name Lucifer, from lucemfere, the light bearer. He is Lucifer. Don't think that he's the way Hollywood portrays this, very dark and sinister. He's a very shiny being. In fact, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, it says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. First time we're introduced to him in Genesis 3, in verse 1, he's referred to as a serpent. The Hebrew word for serpent in the Hebrew is nachash, and nachash means something glittery. It's a word that in Hebrew can mean bronze, copper, uh, or brass. And so I want you to picture him as originally, and I don't think there's any reason to believe he's changed, even though his heart has become wicked, his appearance is shiny, he masquerades as an angel of light. Ezekiel 28, 13 says that he was adorned with every precious stone mounted in settings of gold. So when Satan or Lucifer was originally created, his very being had inlaid within his being precious gems in settings of gold. So I want you to picture a very magnificent, really a very shiny, beautiful creature that God originally created as a light bearer. Now, by the way, for those of you who know your Bibles, you also know that Jesus is called Morning Star in Revelation 22, 16. But note the difference. Jesus is the bright morning star. He is the true light bearer. Satan was originally designed to reflect the glory of God, to reflect the true light, even though his heart is now wicked. So in Revelation 22, 16, Jesus is referred to as the morning star, a similar name we have for Satan, but Lucifer is a reflection of the glory. He is not really the possessor of the glory of God. Now, verse 12 here in your Bibles also says that he fell from heaven and was cast down to earth. This, by the way, is how we know. This does not exclusively refer to the king of Babylon. King of Babylon didn't fall down from heaven. King of Babylon was not cast down to earth, but Satan was. Run 
Thanks for listening to Cornerstone Connection. You've been listening to a message from the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah was a man who lived during many kings' reigns. Perhaps the most well-known king during Isaiah's time was Hezekiah. Isaiah offered counsel and wisdom God had given him, encouraging these kings to continue following God. Some of them did, and others followed their own ways or the people's ways more than God's. Isn't it easy to slip into what the world around you is doing or saying, giving into their ways and rituals? This was the case then, and it's the case now. But what we can learn from Isaiah is that God can use people to speak truth. Did you know that getting together as a church family is one way that you can speak truth to one another? Here at Cornerstone Chapel, we get together each Sunday and Wednesday to learn from the Word and spend time in worship as sons and daughters of the King. It's a powerful time for us to learn together and fellowship together. We'd love for you to be a part of it. Find service times and directions by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks so much for listening and learning in the book of Isaiah on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know